0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Dayson Digest. This week, we have a special treat. We have three guests with us today on the podcast. Uh, I'm Libby Duff-Ashley, I'm the Operations Director for Dayson, and I'm very excited to bring you a recent publication from the Duke Stewardship Team today. Um, I'm joined by one of the lead investigators, Dr. Jessie Seidelman. She is one of the Duke Hospital epidemiologists, and you all may recognize her from DICON. Thanks for joining, Jessie. Thanks so much for having me, Libby. Excited to talk about this paper. Um, we also have another author from the paper. Um, it was from her time when she was with us at Duke. Um, she's now the Pharmacy Manager for Clinical Services at Rex, one of our DAISON member hospitals, and that's Christina Cerubi. Hi, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me today. And then for some current context on the practices at Duke, we have our Medical Director for DAISON, Dr. Schaefer Spires. Thanks for joining, Schaefer.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I thought what we would do first is introduce everyone to the paper and project if they're not that familiar with it. Um, It was actually just published in the first week of September online. And the title is Impact of Antibiotic Stewardship Rounds in the Intensive Care Setting, a Prospective Cluster Randomized Crossover Study. As always, the link to the article will be posted along with this audio content. But to get us started, Jesse, do you mind just giving us a quick overview of the project and what your findings were? absolutely um, and
2: just kind of as a little bit of a background you know we all know that icus are really high loop utilizers of antibiotics um, so they make a perfect target for antibiotic stewardship programs um, a lot of us practice antibiotic stewardship in the icus but not nearly as many study this formally and at the time when we started this project there were really only three studies out there looking at antibiotic stewardship in the icus using kind of a variety of Um, research designs. So, around the time of this study, we actually submitted our data to the CDC for the first time in 2016 to look at our um, FAARs, and they provided us with evidence that, gosh, our ICUs were using a lot more anti mrsa and MDRO agents compared to the national average. This really kind of gave us the motivation to get quantitative and qualitative data from our ICUs to see what was fueling the high antibiotic use. So the design of the study, it was a two-arm cluster randomized crossover study in five ICUs at Duke University Hospital, and it took place over an eight-month period from November of 2017 to June of 2018. The intervention we were looking at was weekly antibiotic stewardship rounds in addition to the usual post-prescription reviews. So in this process, the ICU census lists were reviewed by the stewardship team to apply the exclusion criteria. Patients were identified to discuss on rounds and were reviewed in depth with the antibiotic stewardship team. We excluded patients without active antibiotic orders or if they had a high marker of complexity, such as an existing ID consult, if they were a transplant recipient, a VAD recipient, or were on ECMO. The antibiotic stewardship and ICU teams met up at pre-designated times for each targeted unit um, and rounds included physicians and pharmacists from both antibiotic stewardship and ICU teams antibiotic optimization was discussed on these patients, and patients could be reviewed multiple times from week to week if they stayed in that unit. And the final part of the intervention included a review of those included patients one week after rounds to see if our recommendations were followed. So we included over 4,600 patients in our analysis, about half in the control and half in the intervention. We excluded 68% of the intervention patients from rounds. 60% were excluded because they were not on antibiotics at the time of chart review and the other 8% met our complexity exclusion criteria. So exclusions affected the um, cardiothoracic surgery ICU the most. About 88% of those total patients were excluded. Um, The antibiotic use rate ratio was 0.97 with a confidence interval of 0.91 to 1.04, so not significant overall for all ICUs. However, when we excluded the cardiothoracic ICU, as you can tell, you know we did that because the exclusion rate was so high, the rate ratio overall for the remaining four ICUs was 0.93 with a confidence interval of 0.89 to 0.98, so now was significant. We also found that the antibiotic use in the post-study period decreased by 16% with a confidence interval of 11 to 24% compared to the antibiotic use in the baseline period. We also found that change in antibiotic use was differential among units, so it was largest in the neurology ICU, where it decreased by 28 percent, and smallest in the cardiothoracic ICU, which only saw a decrease of about 2 percent. So the takeaways from this intervention was that it was a really high-use intervention uh, associated with a small antibiotic use reduction, so a lot of effort, but we did see a small um, reduction in the antibiotic use. The other big takeaway I think that is super important to future studies is that the effect of the the intervention differed among the ICUs, which really emphasizes the importance of customizing your antibiotic stewardship rounds to match your unit-specific populations, the workflows, and culture that are in those ICUs.
0: Well, congratulations to you. This is great to have out there in the literature and certainly represents a lot of work. I would also say, as somebody who helps prepare our DAISON benchmark reports, I don't know that we call a 16% reduction small, so it certainly is impressive to us. Um, I did want to ask though some of the the finer details of this, because I think one thing that really impressed me when I read the study was that you saw this effect even though you actually intervene on about a third of the patients. And so I think sometimes our local stewards get discouraged because they can't intervene on every single patient. Um, And I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. And from the standpoint of there was a third that actually received the targeted intervention after all the exclusions were applied, et cetera, and yet you still saw this overall decrease. Um, Do you think that was something we might see replicated in other facilities, for example? Yeah,
2: and I think that that's actually, you know, it's interesting. I think that we got comments on the reviews, like, oh, you only you included everyone in the study. You included like the ICU and the floor time. And, you know, that was a criticism that we got, but we also felt that it was a, a strength of the study, because again, you know, um, you, these interventions aren't necessarily isolated. Again, you know, if a physician is taking care of an ICU and you intervene on one patient, those changes, those recommendations are going to spill over to other subsequent patient care. Um, Other, in in addition, you know, if someone is prescribed an end date of an antibiotic in the ICU, that's hopefully going to carry over to when they're discharged um, to the floor. So that's really why we wanted to look at this globally. And we thought we would bias ourselves towards the null with, with that. So the fact that we still found a difference despite these is is I think is, is really powerful. And again, like you said, kind of speaks to the fact that this is, this is possible to make this change.
0: Thanks. Christina, I know that you were key in helping to design this intervention when it was being rolled out at Duke. And now you have the very unique vantage point of being at a more community-based hospital, albeit a large one. What were your biggest challenges in getting these rounds up and running at Duke? And then how portable do you see this to your next facility?
3: Yeah, you know, I think um, some of the bigger challenges for us in getting this up and running was finding the time in our day to do these reviews because the patients are so complex. So when I think about the amount of time it takes to do a thorough chart review on an ICU patient compared to a, a floor patient on gen med or surgery, it might take double or triple the time. And so my colleague, Rebecca Wren, and I had to factor that into our schedule. Antibiotic stewardship ICU rounds wasn't something that you can just pick up in your day. Um, so, for example, if you have a meeting canceled, maybe you can say, well, I'll just look at it, look through another unit. Um, you can't really do that with ICU patients because they're so complex and you can um, it'll it might take a half an hour to get through one patient. Um, so we needed to ensure that we had enough time to review ICU patients and really feel prepared to discuss these complex patients with the team members, not just the primary care team members, but also the ID physicians that we were rounding with. Also, if you look at some of the interventions that we made in Table 3, you can just see that a number of the interventions were regarding certain diagnostic criteria, recommending a new imaging study or a microbiologic test. Um, And those interventions aren't traditionally something that pharmacists are trained to do. So I did have to rely on our physician colleagues to help help me gain a fuller understanding of a lot of these diagnostic workups that an ICU patient might need. And so I I learned a lot um, throughout the course of uh, this study. Um, so I think it just showed us that through uh, the through study that antibiotic stewardship ICU rounds aren't just your traditional antibiotic stewardship interventions, and I had to get beyond that. I'm not just gonna be making IV to PO switches or those optimization recommendations, there are a lot of layers to these ICU interventions, and pharmacists, um, certainly myself, recognize that it's a real team effort um, to provide care in this patient population. Um, you know, knowing that, knowing everything that goes into stewardship rounds in the ICU, how much time in your day um, you need to commit to this, um, knowing that this is a real team effort, um, we've been thinking about doing this at UNC-REx for quite some time. We're hoping that we can, once our COVID numbers decrease a little bit or, and are a little bit more manageable. Um, UNC-REx is a big hospital. It's a large community hospital of almost 500 beds. We have four adult ICUs, all with their unique culture, similar to Duke University Hospital. And we have multidisciplinary rounds in three of those units as well. Um, you know, our... Our antibiotic stewardship team is comprised of um, one person on any given day, so we have a a specialist, um, and then two or three other team members, um, which is just one one person um, on weekdays, and then a fairly strong pool of critical care pharmacists who make excellent stewards. And so I can't say enough about them and their ability um, to uh, facilitate and help make antibiotic recommendations on rounds, and I know our critical care and uh, intensivist team really um, trust them and look to them for their guidance. Um, So, I think in some regards, we function very much like Duke in establishing rounds. I think, um, as Dr. Siedelman mentioned, I think we'd probably pick one unit like our neuro ICU or cardiac intensive care unit, where we might be able to make more impact um, doing these handshake rounds. Um, we have a medical director as well, Um, just knowing that there are lots of layers to antibiotic stewardship interventions in ICU patients. And she has um, also committed to spending some time, so maybe like um, one morning a week, um, if we want to pilot this program and see what kinds of interventions we would make um, in those patients. And then from there, just decide where our efforts and interventions are best spent. Um, So I think that's just the best way to learn is just to try, try it out. So, you know, I think we can see if this makes an impact in our hospital. Um, You know, I think more community hospitals like Rex also have rapid diagnostic testing available. Um, I know we got BioFire this year. So even if you're not able to do um, and kind of commit to handshake rounds, Um, In ICUs long term, at least there are some other uh, stewardship interventions that we can work through, um, like rapid diagnostic testing, penicillin allergy assessments, and other diagnostic stewardship tools that our physician colleagues can help with. So something we're really, really interested in and looking forward to partnering with some of our other pharmacists here on uh, implementing some of these efforts.
0: But that's all great advice. I really like the idea of sort of starting small, don't try to boil the ocean and then learn and, and grow within your own institution. And I know that, so both Christina and Jesse were very involved in the start of this project and seeing it through to this phase of completion, but Schaefer, I know that you leave the office a couple times a week to go do these rounds today. What has it been like to try to keep the momentum going and what are some of the biggest challenges you have with continuing these stewardship rounds in the ICU?
1: Well, uh, to second what you guys have said earlier, this is it is a lot of work and it takes time that we dedicate. However, <clears throat> for me, this was an easy thing to step into because of the groundwork laid by you guys before I got here. So I started doing it on the uh, neuro ICU, which has the biggest impact in this in this study uh, based on the handshake rounds. And I, I am now providing the second day per week uh, along with another one of our colleagues uh, of, of handshake rounds. And they, you know, you quickly realize why their unit was such a, a unit that had a, a large impact uh, where, where the intervention had a large impact because they seem to have a culture of inclusivity and willing to accept recommendations and, and and to me that that's that is largely because of the longevity and sustainability of the relationships here and and I think that that is that highlights the, the ultimate goal of uh, this type of intervention is you, know, you call it handshake rounds because you're making face-to-face uh, exchanges here in people see you as a resource and you have to understand that you are providing unsolicited advice uh, uh, to the patient or to the providers on their patients and sometimes that is seen as offensive and providers can get defensive about it. Uh, However, if once they get to know you and know that you're coming up there uh, every week or, or more often and that you have their best interest and you're willing to listen to compromise and you are listening to their side of the story then they understand that, that you have their back and that that is when I think it becomes fun because then you become involved in quality initiatives and you know everything from central line to county prevention to CDF prevention and developing new order sets for uh, rapid diagnostics and uh and and as christina is 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 probably about to see that you know potentially provide an opportunity for uh you become the the resource for education when new technologies come out and and you can kind of jump ahead of the game and show them how to use it appropriately and now when you so i've been the beneficiary of of all the groundwork you guys have laid in years past However, I also started doing it up on the hematology and oncology wards, and this has been more challenging to say the least, and and largely because there is a huge data gap that uh, I realized I did not fully appreciate before I started going up there. and, and with regards especially to de-escalation, you know, things like febrile neutropenia, like what do we do when the uh, neutropenia doesn't recover for several weeks, but the fever is gone and there's no specific infection that we're treating. Do we leave it on there like the US guidelines recommend or we take it off like the European guidelines recommend? And there's really no definitive uh, data to describe tell us exactly what to do. And that's just one particular scenario, much less the fact that the rounds are done differently up there than they are in the ICUs. And so it, it's been more of a challenge for me uh, to engage, interact with them. Uh, but at the same time, since they know that I'm there and I'm coming back every week, uh, they, they will kind of use me as a liaison with the stewardship group and infectious diseases or transplant infectious diseases. So. Uh it, it's just been a good opportunity to kind of engage with them. So
0: it sounds like consistency is key. Now, before we close, I'm going to ask each of you this last question, because we get asked this by our DASAN sites all the time. And the question is, what is the number one thing, if, if I don't have time, because, Christina, you, you did a very nice job of describing how complex some of these patients can be. What if you don't have time to review all the patients? Were there any common themes that you found in these ICU patients that you'd say, this is a patient that's likely ripe for an intervention and I should really spend the time to review this patient? And I imagine each of you have different thoughts on that. So I'll start with you, Jesse. What do you think was the, the richest stewardship targets?
2: I think a lot of times, um, you know, not just that it was quite prevalent, but that it was also perhaps one of the easiest things to convince teams of was an end date. So for instance, you know, a patient was very sick, got put on antibiotics. And I think one of the easiest things to, to provide was to say, okay, you're gonna treat them as you know, pneumonia. Let's set the end date as this. And then if things change, we can always change the end date. But that was something I think, again, relatively easy
0: to do and that teams were very comfortable doing early on. Great, what about you, Christina? Which, what would make you really think that you should review a particular chart?
3: You know, I think it's a tough question. We I think we came across so many different um kinds of patients. And I, I do uh, agree with Dr. Siedelman um in that, you know, if you can find patients who have been on antibiotics for a longer duration of therapy and try to target those um those patients and go after them and see what kind of kinds of conversations you can have um, with the providers. Um, and like I mentioned before, there are layers to these interventions. Um, where you know you can dig into a chart and say, okay, here's another opportunity for dose optimization as well in this in this patient. Um, but yeah, you know, I think um, trying to find some patients that um, probably have been on antibiotics when they're reaching that five to seven day mark, and you um, can probably make an inter some kind of intervention at that point. So I think if that's that's all you can um, look at, um, try to target those patients.
0: Oh, that's also good advice instead of that new admission to the ICU. Now, what about you, Schaefer? What what draws you to a patient chart for stewardship intervention?
1: Yeah, if, if, if time is a limited resource, as it is probably for most of us, uh, you know, I, I'm a fan of picking the lowest hanging fruit. You set the bar so low that you can trip uh, and sometimes still fall over it. I mean, you know, things like getting the bank off after 48 hours, or if they're using it for pneumonia, you feel pretty confident about a a negative MRSA PCR from the nasal swab. Then, you know, it's a low risk thing that that can. It's a quick win and and very uh, low risk of you know patient adverse outcome. Uh, and and the duration thing is big for me. I kind of say that uh, an antibody without a duration. I feel like the the dad of the house that walks into a room with with the light bulb still on but nobody's in it, I have to go in there and turn it off. That's the same for me if I see an antibiotic without a duration. Uh you just kind of it's like a magnet. You, you gotta make sure somebody at least can say the indication uh and therefore they can then establish the duration. And if and if they can say that, then then at least there's less to argue about. Uh, and then, you know, if, you know, the specific example of pneumonia, I feel like it's probably tends to be the most common empiric choice or reason for uh, antibiotics, especially in the ICU. Well, once you kind of get them saying, this is what I'm treating, a pneumonia, okay, well, then we'll stop it in five to seven days. Well, then you can start, uh, you know, the next step is saying, well, hey, look, you're calling this pneumonia, but we've got three x-rays with no infiltrates on it. And then you can kind of start pushing back on that once you establish rapport with them.
0: Thanks. That's helpful. And I think it's also encouraging for people who are just starting out to know that um, you know, even experienced stewards like you, Shaper, still have to, to start slow and build upon those relationships. It's so important. Well, I want to thank all three of you for taking the time out. I know that this is an article that will certainly be useful throughout the on network. We hope... Everyone listening takes the time to check it out, uh, but it's also going to be helpful to stewardship programs and uh, on a much broader level. So thank you again for taking time to talk to us, uh, Jesse, Christina, and Schaefer, and we hope you all have a great day. Thank you for listening.
1: Thanks, Libby.
3: Thank you. Thank you.